Our text this morning is Deuteronomy chapter 9. And there'll be some verses on the screen. Deuteronomy chapter 9, and we're going to uh, just do some summarizing of these next few chapters because Moses is repeating the law. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. So the children of Israel are prepared to go into the promised land. God's already told Moses that he's he's not going to go in the promised land, but he's going to die. And uh, so they have been preparing for this for 40 years. And now you remember they came once before, 38 years prior to this, they came to the edge of the promised land and refused to go in. They didn't trust God, and so they refused to go in. And so God said that that generation would die in the wilderness, and they, they have. And now their children uh, are prepared to go into the promised land. And Moses is recapping where they've been and what God has said to them. So that's why we're not going verse by verse through these chapters, because it's a recap and we've been studying it. And so he's challenging them when they go into this land uh, that they're going to be faced not only with the battle to take the land, but they're going to be faced with the idolatry of the people who live there. Uh, They're going to be faced spiritually as well as physically with trials and and temptations that they haven't experienced in their life. Now think about this generation has been raised. Everyone everyone 20 years old and up died in the wilderness. Everyone 20 years old that came out of Egypt died in the wilderness. So this is a generation that has lived in the wilderness. So they've lived in an incubator. They've lived in their own community of however many uh, thousands of people there were in this Jewish nation that's dwelt by themselves and had very little contact with the outside world. And so he's saying to them, you need to be prepared when you go into this land, you're going to be tempted in, in ways probably that you never have before. And your track record is not good. You, Even though you've been isolated from the outside world and temptation, you have rebelled against God, and we're going to see that, and so I'm getting ahead of myself, but so he's, he's saying to them, you're going to face the battle physically to take the land. You're going to face something that's stronger and, and worse. And that's the temptations of these idolatrous people to be like them and to follow their gods. And so uh, he is warning them. He's repeating uh, what God has said to them. He uh, repeats the commandments. He repeats uh, a lot of the moral law. And so... Now, remember, since we haven't been here, I haven't been here two weeks, and you weren't here last Sunday because of Easter, but uh, remember 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us that we're to learn from these people, these very people, we're to learn from them and not repeat the same mistakes. Our nature is the same as their nature. And so we're tempted to uh, physically, we're tempted spiritually, we're tempted in every way, and so... He speaks to them truth, and he's, he's very straightforward with them about who they are and what they faced and what they're going to face. So read with me, if you would, chapter 9, verse 1 through 6. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today and go in and, and dispossess nations greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven. 
a people great and tall, the descendants of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the descendants of Anak? Therefore understand today that the Lord your God is he who goes over before you as a consuming fire. He will destroy them and bring them down before you, so you shall drive them out and destroy them quickly, as the Lord has said to you. Do not think in your heart, after the Lord your God has cast them out before you, saying, Because of my righteousness, the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, but it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out from before you. Now remember, 400 years prior to this, God had told Abraham that this was his land and that he's going to give him this land, everything he treads on, and this whole area, much bigger than Israel is today, God had given him this land, but he said to him 400 years previously that the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So your, your descendants are going to be in Egypt for 400 years and then come back. So this is prophesied. Now, now, now why is he going to drive them out? Because their iniquity is now full. Okay, and what is that iniquity? It's idolatry. It is a, it is a, a wicked idolatry. Now continue reading with me in verse 5. It is not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart that you're going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord your God drives them out from before you, and that he may fulfill the word which the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Therefore understand that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stiff-necked people. Moses, Moses was a preacher, was he not? When he points his fingers, that you are a stiff-necked people. Now remember, these are, the, these are the children of the people who were rebellious initially, but they still have the same nature, and so do you, and so do I. We have the same nature. God made a covenant with Abraham. He's going to keep his covenant. He's going to give the descendants of Abraham this land. What we need to learn, what I want to stress in this lesson is the sovereignty of God. God has a God is sovereign over his creation. That means that he's the ruler. It means that he's the king. It, it means that he plans and he executes his plan. Now, we're not puppets, uh, but we are subject to his sovereignty. And God uh, is at work. We've, we've looked before that, that God is a God over the nations. Uh, he, he puts up, he rises up one, he puts down another. He's the God over rulers. He rises up one, puts down another. Uh, so God is sovereign in his dealing with the nations and with individuals. And we today live under God's sovereignty. He has a plan for our lives. He has a plan for your life. He has a plan for my life. Now, we, we have free will according to our nature, okay? Uh, and let me explain that. According to our nature means that before I knew Christ, uh, I didn't know Christ until I was 25 years old, but before I knew Christ in salvation, I knew of Christ, but before I knew Christ and salvation, my nature was unregenerate, okay? I, didn't, I wasn't saved. And so I acted out my nature. Now, 
I knew enough of the presence of God in the world that I felt guilty. I had a conscience, and my conscience smote me regularly. My conscience and my wife smote me regularly. But you understand, after I come to know Christ, now I have the Holy Spirit indwelling me, and I have a new nature. Now, the old nature is still in the flesh. This is what Paul teaches in Romans. The old nature is still in the flesh, okay? But I have a new nature in my spirit, my soul, uh, and, and the new nature wants me to follow Christ. The new nature convicts me from the Word of God to follow Christ. So I still have free will, but it's according to my new nature. Now, not my old nature, but my new nature. So we have free will according to our nature, not free will with no restriction, because God is sovereign. So uh, we can be grateful that the Lord has intervened in our lives. Um, There are a lot of people who have resentment uh, when they don't sense that they have free will to order their lives as they choose. Now, for an unsaved person, that makes sense. For a saved person, that's rebellion. If you want to be free from God's restraint, now think about the children of Israel. They had the commandments given, the moral law. They had the ceremonial law given. They had to live under these restraints. They even had a dietary law given. They had to live under these restraints. But they weren't really restraint. They were protections God said, don't eat these things. You're, you're, de- you're dwelling in the desert. You eat these things, you're going to get sick and die. Don't do these things because you're going to spiritually ruin your life. Don't, don't treat each other differently. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't commit adultery because you can't have a society that functions if you do those things. So they were protections that he had given them. And they're protections that he's given to us. But sometimes... If we have an unregenerate nature, we see them as restrictions, and we don't like it. We want to have complete autonomy, complete free will. So you can either resent that, that God is sovereign, or you can be grateful that he sovereignly intervened in your life and brought you to faith in Christ. And that's where we should be. This promise is not, uh, we just read, it's not because of their greatness as a nation. They were a great nation. Now there are a multitude of people. Some some scholars believe two to three million people at this point in time. There were a multitude of people. They were a powerful force. They had already had a few skirmishes with other nations at this point in time. And they, they were prepared to go in, and even though these people were the sons of Anak and giants in the land, they were prepared to go in and take them. God had said they could, and they, and they can. But how, now he's saying to them that it's, it's not because of your greatness. It's because of my promise. When we were in chapter 7 a few weeks ago, chapter 7, verse 1, said that these seven nations that they're going to face are greater and more powerful than you are. So they're stronger, they're more equipped, they're, they're used to battle, they're just, they're just more powerful than you are, but they're not more powerful than God. Um, in, in chapter 7, verse 6, 8, I don't know if you remember, but he said that you're a holy nation, and holy in this sense means that they're set apart, you're a set apart nation. We've seen in their lives, it wasn't a holiness of their behavior, 
but it was the covenant relationship of God. God set them apart with a covenant. He made a covenant with Abraham, repeated it to Isaac and Jacob, and said, I'm going to make your descendants as the sand of the sea and as the stars of the sky, and they're going to occupy this land. And so it's a covenant relationship. You remember as we've gone through and followed them through the Exodus, every time they sinned and the Lord was angry and he said to Moses, Moses, get out of the way, I'm going to kill these people and I'm going to, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And Moses would remind God of his covenant. He would say, God, you made a covenant with these people and you made a covenant with their fathers, which would be Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And if you don't keep your covenant, all the nations are going to know that you're a God who didn't keep your covenant. And all the nations are going to know that you couldn't, they're they're going to think that you couldn't protect these people, that you couldn't bring them into the land, even though you said you were going to do that. So Moses interceded according to the covenant, and he's still doing it. He's still doing it. He's still reminding them that you're a covenant people and you're holy, which means you're set apart. Okay, today you and I who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit at salvation, you're given the Holy Spirit. And, And we are set apart by the Holy Spirit. We're in the hand of God. Jesus said, no one's going to pluck you from the hand of God. Okay, so, but that doesn't mean that I'm holy in my behavior. It means that I'm holy, I'm set apart. I'm a saint. You're a saint. Call me Saint Jerry, and I'll call you Saint whatever. You know, we're a saint. Okay, the very word, same thing. It means you're set apart. It means you're set apart for God. So when, when we read this and we recognize that what God was doing for them, they had a covenant relationship and we have a covenant relationship, but ours is the new covenant. Ours, ours, their, their covenant was behavioral. Ours is grace. Ours is that we are under the blood of Christ. So we've been freely given. There's no requirement. It is an unconditional covenant. There is no requirement for us. We simply have received the gift of God, which is salvation through the blood of Christ. That makes sense to you? Theirs was a covenant relationship based on behavior. That's why the first generation died in the wilderness. It's because their behavior, they didn't keep the covenant. And now we're going to read in these chapters, if I'll quit messing around, we're going to read in these chapters that God's going to say to them, your covenant is bound up in this land, and and you go into this land, and you obey me in this land, you will receive blessing. If you don't, you're going to receive blessing. A curse. So, um, this principle that here when we read that God didn't choose you because of your greatness, the principle applies in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, uh, we, we read this in chapter 2. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty and the base things which are despised and the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. No flesh should glory in his presence. I read after a man named Raymond Brown, and he said that it is our fallen nature to want to snatch the glory of God for ourselves. We want to be glorified. 
We, we want to be, don't you? Don't you want to be praised? That's why you combed your hair before you came this morning. That's why you hopefully brushed your teeth and all those things. We want, when people look at us, think, well, isn't he a nice guy? I mean, look how nice he is. I mean, <clears throat> you know, don't, doesn't he behave right? Doesn't, you know, we, we want to be, we, and, and so now put that in the matter of salvation. We want the glory for our own salvation. We want to say that God redeemed me because I'm such a good person. I'm not sure why he redeemed you, but he redeemed me because I know what is, I'm like in my heart. How many times have you ever heard someone say to you after they've committed grievous sin that they've said to you, I'm not that kind of person? How many of you ever heard somebody, somebody ever say that to you? I'm not that kind of person. Well, yes, you are, and so am I. We're sinners. We have a sin nature. If I did it, that's me. You know, it doesn't matter what the circumstances were. It doesn't matter whether I was under pressure or whether I was depressed. It doesn't matter how great the temptation. I sin because I'm a sinner. You do the same thing. So that's who we are. But we don't. We want to snatch God's glory for ourselves. Moses is warning them. He's saying, you're going to have success, but it's not you. It's not, your, it's not your greatness. And then he says, it is not your righteousness. Uh, it, it's, not, it's not anything to do with you. There is a universal tendency today among Christianity to earn your salvation. <clears throat> this has been an ongoing battle since, uh, since the beginning of time, we, man's nature is to earn our salvation. Um, that is our fallen nature. A, a, a guy named Augustus Toplady wrote the hymn, Rock of Ages. Um, if Robert was teaching, he could sing it for you. But, Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the only salvation we have. It's through grace, by faith in Jesus Christ. Moses then, and, and from chapter, from verse 7 here, all the way through 24, the rest of this chapter, he gives examples of their sinfulness. He goes back to their history, and we're not going to recap it, but he goes back to their history in the desert and recaps their sinfulness. He, he, re, he reminds them, or this is your behavior. God didn't bring you in because of your righteousness, and here's an example of your unrighteousness. And so we're not going to read those things, but verse 24 is a summary. So look at verse 24, if you would. And he said this, You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. Now, these are people who came out of Egypt because they believed God. They trusted in Moses' leadership under God's authority. And they came out of Egypt, and they had been dwelling under this authority, eating the manna. Their clothes didn't rot off of them. God provided every need they had. He allowed them to take the wealth of the Egyptians who lived around them when they came out. So they're greatly blessed, but they've been in the wilderness. But Moses says, but this is the character of your heart. You've been rebellious since the day that I knew you. 
And that is our, that is our tendency as well to do this. In those verses, I'm not going to, again, we're not going to read them, but he uses some descriptive terms. I'm going to just read the term. Arrogant, stubborn, rebellious, provocative, corrupt, idolatrous, sinful, evil, unbelieving, disobedient, and wicked. That's pretty clear, isn't it? That, I mean, that's a pretty good condemnation. And so he recaps five instances during that time, and that is the summary of who they were. Now, why do they have this recap of sin? Why is he reminding them? Because they want to snatch God's glory. When they go in and when they conquer the land, they're going to say, aren't we something? Aren't we powerful? Aren't we something? And they recap the sin because the Bible is realistic. The Bible gives us a realistic view of our nature and of sin. It teaches us that salvation is a gift. It cannot be earned. So Moses starts interceding for them. Verse 26, if you read that with me. Therefore I prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your inheritance whom you have redeemed through your greatness whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not look on the stubbornness of this people or on their wickedness or on their sin, lest the land from which you brought us should say, because the Lord was not able to bring them to the land which you promised them, And because he hated them, he has brought them out to kill them in the wilderness. Verse 29, yet they are your people and your inheritance whom you brought out by your mighty power and by your outstretched arm. I don't know how you pray or when you pray, but you know, one of the ways that we should pray is we should pray, Lord, uh, what Moses did here, he interceded according to the will of God. He reminded God of his covenant with these people. He didn't say, Lord, these people deserve your blessing. He didn't say that. He said, Lord, you coveted with them to give them your blessing. And we should pray that. We should say, Lord, I don't deserve your grace, but you promised me grace through Christ. And I'm pleading on the blood of Christ for your blessing in my life, for your guidance in my life, for your forgiveness, for your, for, for, for your intervention in my life, in the, in the life of those that I love. And we plead the blood of Christ. That's our covenant. We plead the blood of Christ. That's what Moses did. He pleaded the covenant that God had made with Israel. He didn't plead their goodness, but pleaded the covenant. And then uh, you come to chapter 10, and uh, we're going to go all the way down to verse 12. Again, the, ver- the first verses, um, he talks about the broken tablets of the law and the rest of God, God tells him to get two more, uh, two more tablets of stone and come back up to the mountain. God writes on those, the Ten Commandments. And now in verse 12, he says, chapter 10, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God and to walk in his ways, and to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments of the Lord and the statutes which I command you today for your good. What does the Lord require of you but to love him? Now, how can an unregenerate person love the Lord? We love ourselves. How can we 
how can we truly, we're commanded, he's saying, you're commanded to love the Lord, but how can we do that? I want to, uh, so we're going to talk, we're going to talk theology for just a minute, okay? Uh, <clears throat> at, four, at about 400 AD, there was a, uh, one of the greatest men in Christianity was Augustine or Augustine, however you want to pronounce his name, and uh, he was the bishop in Africa, and uh, so he, he, he wrote this. Give me the speaking to God. Give me the grace to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. Okay, give me the grace to do what you command, and command me to do what you will. Okay, so he's saying, I don't have the grace to do what you command. God said to these people through Moses. I command you to love me, but we don't have the capacity to love God. Outside of Christ, I don't have the capacity to love God. Are you? And so he's saying, Augustine, all the way back there in the early beginnings of the church, give me the grace to do as you command, and then command me what you will. And and then he's saying, I, I can't do that. Well, when he wrote that, there was another leading theologian named Pelagius. And Pelagius drove him crazy, and so he writes a book, and he, they contest it. Pelagius says that man has absolute free will. Man can choose to love God or not love God. Augustine is saying man can only love God because God gives you the grace to do so. Okay, now that is predicated on a different theology point or doctrinal point, and, and this is what that is, okay? Behind this disagreement, this is still going on today among Baptist churches and other Christian churches as well. This is still, this disagreement still going on today. Um, they have a different opinion about the nature of humanity, all right? Here, and here it is. Augustine argued that ever since Adam ate the fruit in the garden, humanity was corrupt, total corruption. And, and Romans said, and when and Adam sinned, and in Adam all sinned. So in Adam I sinned. You, we're we're the offspring of Adam, and we were born with a sin nature. Now I I believe that, but not everybody believes that. They believe only Pelagius believed only Adam sinned, and it didn't corrupt the human race. Okay, so it didn't corrupt the human race. So the human race has free will. So every person can choose for themselves whether they will sin or whether they will not sin or whether they'll love God or whether they'll not love God. They have complete autonomy from God. They're they're complete autonomous from God. They can choose for themselves. God's over here and they're over here and they can choose for themselves. Augustine said, no, they cannot do that. They are under the authority of God and they can only choose God because the Holy Spirit does a work in their life and he, God commands them to and he, he wills them to. And only when he wills them to can they respond in, in love to God. Okay, that has, that has gone down through the church. And today the argument is free will. Does man have free will? Or is, are we born in complete corruption? 
Are we born with a nature that is, that is corrupt, that we could not ever choose God? We could never be saved. It has to be a gift of God. Well, let me give you a little insight into history. When they was argument was going back and forth, public argument going back and forth, they're writing books or pamphlets, and they're going back and forth. So a council was called, and over three, <clears throat> I think 300 bishops, so all the leaders of the church at that time, and that area of, of the Middle East came together, and they decided this issue. Two of them agreed with Pelagius, and the other 298 agreed with Augustine, that the Bible teaches that we are fallen in Adam. And what that fallenness meant is that we could never on our own choose God. It has to be an act of grace. Are you with me still? Now, whether you agree or not is up to you, but it has, they agreed, 298 out of 300 agreed, the Bible teaches that we are fallen and it has to be an act of grace. And so that argument is carried all the way down through today, though people still disagree. And I'm going to just tell you about the majority of Baptists. The, uh, if you went back 100 years, the majority of Baptists, nearly without exception, would agree with Augustine. Today, the majority of Baptists agree with Pelagius. They're saying that they're interpreting Scripture to say that man has free will, and man can choose whether he wants to be saved or not want to be saved. It's completely up to him, and God really doesn't have any say in the choice because man is autonomous and can just say whether he wants to be saved or not. But the Bible does not teach that. Jesus said, John 6, no one comes to the Father unless the Spirit draws him. Now, was Jesus mistaken? Or is that true? And that's not just Jesus saying it. It's, it's throughout the Scripture. This is, what, this is what we're finding right here in Deuteronomy. It's God's election. I didn't choose you because of your greatness. I didn't choose you because of your goodness. I chose you because I wanted to, and I made of you a great nation, and I'm the one who blesses. And, and that, and start, you know, it, it, it starts... It, it, it starts in Genesis, and it's all through the Bible. Now, there's something in our, our fallen nature. We don't like that. We don't like the fact that I, as an individual, never had a choice. That one day, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and drew me, and it's because not because I decided I wanted to be a better person, that He drew me because it was simply the election of God. And it was, had nothing to do with me. It had to do with the good pleasure of God. And, and see, in my, my carnal nature thinks, well, if God had good pleasure in electing me, it was surely because he saw some good in me. But the Bible teaches that's not, the Bible teaches just the opposite. Before salvation, we are at enemy with God. We're enemies of God. Romans 5.8. And while, while there, okay, somebody quote Romans 5.8 for me, so. Okay, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. You get that? While we were yet sinners. All of Romans teach us this principle that we are simply saved by grace, not by our works, not by our goodness. We, we, our, our tongues are like an ass, but you know, we dispute spew out our own hatefulness until we come to know Christ. It's a gift. Are you with me on this? Okay. 
That's basic theology that determines the course of your life. That is basic theology that sets you free to glorify God. If, if you don't receive that and humble yourself and say, Lord, there's nothing within me that you see as worthy, but you saved me through the blood of your Son for your own purposes. And, and I give you glory for that. I rejoice in that salvation. You're glorifying God. If you, if you say, Lord, you saved me because I was worthy to be saved, you're glorifying yourself. You're robbing God of his glory. And that is the antithesis of worship. So this is a hard lesson, and it's, but it's a very important lesson because it sets you free to worship. It sets you free, and, and it sets you free in another way. It sets you free from the guilt of your sinfulness. Now, if I go and knock over a 7-Eleven, I should feel guilty, okay? But, but if, I, if I'm tempted to knock over a 7-Eleven, I don't have to live with guilt for the rest of my life. You understand? If I'm tempted to lust, if I'm tempted to covetousness, I don't have to feel guilty the rest of my life. You know why? Because I acknowledge biblically that's my nature, I am a sinner. I want something for nothing. I want what you have. I want what they have. I want, I want, I want. I want glory. And I think if money can give me glory, I want money. If I think that uh, a golf score can give me glory, I want a golf score. I want, I want, I want. And so it's an entrapment for us. But if I recognize I am a sinner and that's my nature... But God's forgiven me of that, and I have to resist it. When I'm tempted, when I sense I'm tempted, I have to say, God, you're my fulfillment. God, you are my provision. You are my provider. You're my Savior. You're all that I need, and I'm going to follow you and trust in you, and Lord, I'm not going to trust in myself. That's worship. And it's a worship of God, not of self, in this, in this sense. So, go on down with me. <clears throat> we read verse, chapter 10, verse 12, that he's commanded us to love him, but the only way we can is that he gives us grace to love him. And then, verse 13, he commands us to keep the commandments. Uh, then verse 14, Indeed, heaven and the highest heaven belong to the Lord your God, also the earth, and all that is in it, that's That's the sovereignty of God. Okay, the Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and he chose their descendants after them, you above all people, as it is this day. Now remember what we just read. Remember the context. He just said here, he chose your fathers, he delighted in them, but he didn't delight in their goodness, he didn't delight in their greatness, he chose to delight in them. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. The Jewish people were recognized by circumcision. We won't talk about where, but circumcision. And that set them apart from the other people. And now he's saying, do that to your heart. Do that to your heart. And you yourself think, okay, I belong to Christ. He did a work in me. I belong to Christ. Verse 17, for the Lord your God is a God of gods, a Lord of lords, 
the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless, the widow, and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him, and to him you shall hold fast and take oaths in his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt with 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as the stars of heaven in multitude. <clears throat> so this is the initiative of God, and he is worthy of our worship. And I'm, I'm serious, folks. This is, key, this is a key doctrine for your own happiness in life. If, if you understand the sovereignty of God, if you accept... I don't understand it, but if you accept the sovereignty of God, and you think, God's sovereign, I'm not, and God, God rules, I don't, then you're set free to worship and to accept who you are and your place in life and the circumstances that come in your life. If I, if I suffer uh, some reverse in my life, whether it's physical or financial or relational, if I suffer that, I can trust God. It's not punishment. It's not, you know, one of the saddest things about pastoring is that as people have gotten old and the generations have come and we've been here 50 years and we've seen a couple of generations and when people have gotten old and infirm and they, they were members, faithful members of the church and they believe God has forsaken them. That's sad. That breaks my heart because God hasn't. That's the way of the world. That, that's, that's, the way of the, that's the way of the fallen world is that we're going to get old and, and we can have that. You should have seen Don and I were watching television last night and when we tried to get up out of our chairs, we both groaned. You know, you, you sat there long enough, you both groan when you get up. And so that's the way of the world. Do I like that? I hate that. I want to be, I want to feel young. I don't want to be young. I just want to feel young. But those days are gone. That ship sailed. And so, you understand? But, but I don't want to resent it either. And you, you understand that it sets you free when you understand the sovereignty of God, that you live under the sovereignty of God, you don't fear and you don't complain. Compl- I should say, we don't complain and we don't fear. Because we complain out of fear most of the time about what we complain about. <clears throat> now, chapter 11, we have just a few minutes, and let me just summarize chapters. Ch- chapter 11 has to do with the covenant blessing of the land. I want to read just a, a little portion of it. I'm going to read these first seven verses, and I want you to listen for the word, the lamb, the lamb. Therefore, you shall love the Lord your God and keep his charge, statements, and judgments, and commandments, Always know today that I do not speak with your children whom you have not known and who have not seen the chastening of the Lord your God. His greatness, his mighty hand, his outstretched arm, his signs and acts which he did in the midst of Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and to all his land. What he did to the army of Egypt, to the horses and chariots, how he made the waters of the Red Sea. Okay, that's not what I want to write. He's reminding them of the experience. And now I want to go to verse 8. Okay, verse 8, he speaks about the land. Therefore, you shall keep every commandment which I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and possess the land 
which you cross over to possess, that you may prolong your days in the land that the Lord swore to give your fathers, to them their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land which you go to possess is not like the land of Egypt. And then he describes it where you watered uh, the sea by, by foot, probably a foot pump. Verse 11, but the land which you cross over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water from the rain of heaven, a land for which the Lord your God cares. The eyes of the Lord your God are always on it from the beginning of the year to the very end of the year. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart, with all your soul, that I will give you the rain for the land, for your land in its season, and the early rain, the latter rain, that you may gather in your grain with new wine and your oil. Okay, so he speaks about the land, the land, the land. Now go back to Abraham, and God made a covenant with Abraham concerning the land. Okay, so the nation of Israel is tied in a covenant relationship with God, and according and the covenant relationship with God concerning the land. But I've said to you before, these are principles that we learn in the New Testament. We have principles that we live by. We don't have a covenant relationship with God concerning the land. All right, you remember you seeing the billboard? There used to be one out on Wall Street in Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people hear my voice and repent and return to me, and I will, I will heal their land. Remember that? You see that on greeting cards. You hear preachers say that. That is a covenant promise to Israel, not to Christians, but to Israel. Now the principle is for Christians. If we repent, God forgives. But he hadn't promised to bless our land. He hadn't promised to make it rain or not make it rain. If he has, somebody's not praying. We saw on the news the other night that Fort Lauderdale got 29 inches of rain in one day. And our our newscast said that we got 29 inches in the last thousand days. That's nearly three years, two and a half years or so. So somebody is misbehaving, evidently. <laughs> if, so you understand? So we can't do that. We're not under the covenant relationship of Israel. So don't confuse that. When you read those greeting cards and it has those verses that are promises to Israel, we don't live that. We live under grace. Okay? God's, God, God, if we repent... He blesses us, but he hadn't promised to make it rain. You know, here's an interesting thing. You remember you move forward in history, and you remember Elijah confronts Ahab, the wicked king of Israel. And Elijah says to him, it will not rain until I say. You know what? Elijah was proclaiming the will of God because they lived under the covenant relationship that if, and, and, here, and here it is, um, let's read it, then we're going to quit. Go, to, go with me to verse 26 of chapter 11. It says, Behold, I set before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandment of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandment of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way which I command you to go after other gods, which you have not known... And so there's a blessing and a curse. 
Okay? And part of that blessing and the curse we read back in verse 13 is rain or does not rain. Okay? Down in verse 17, he said, Lest the Lord's anger be aroused in you, shut up heaven so there be no rain, and the land yield no produce, you perish quickly, turn from the good land which the Lord is giving you. When Ahab, when Ahab listens to Elijah, Ahab and was leading the whole nation into idolatry. He had married Jezebel, who was an idolatrous woman, and she's influencing Ahab, leading the nation into idolatry. And, and Elijah said, it's not going to rain. He's proclaiming the will of God. He understood Scripture, and he understood that covenant relationship, and it wasn't in Elijah's power not to make it rain, but he understood it was in God's power. It's really interesting, isn't it? Now, we don't live under that covenant, but we live under the principles of that covenant. We have the Holy Spirit. If we grieve the Spirit, we're going to struggle in life. If we quench the Spirit by our sinfulness or our unattentiveness to the things of God, we're going to have trouble in our life spiritually. But when we invite Him to guide us and teach us and lead us, we're blessed regardless of the circumstances around us. God hasn't promised us. Here's here's the promise for Christians in the New Testament. You're going to have tribulation until Christ comes. We're not going to conquer the world. We're not going to convert the world. We're going to have tribulation until Christ comes. Now, what's that tribulation? I have tribulation against this flesh. This is my biggest problem right here. My second biggest problem is in this room. I won't point at them, but the my second biggest problem. And then I have a problem with you sometimes. I have a problem with the guy at the gas station. I have a problem with the guys at the golf course. I, I have a problem at, out there in the world. But, but, but that's the problem in life. We have a problem with other nations in our, our world today. But that, that's, that's not going to be conquered. What is conquered is my, is my sin. God forgave my sin. It was a gift. And I, I honor him for that. I worship because of that. Pray with me, please. Our Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what, Lord, you did on our behalf in Christ, that we're set free, uh, Lord, from uh, self. We're set free from the curse of sin. You've broken the power of sin in our lives. Uh, Lord, we, we still sin, but we don't have to. Uh, Lord, we can uh, resist it. The devil flee from us. Not that we'd ever be completely free, but Lord, we'd be freed enough to worship you and follow you. So please help us. Uh, thank you for what you did for us in Christ. We honor you this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, God bless you, and we will take up here next week.